Hello and welcome to Beyond Boundaries. I'm Justin Douglas. So happy you can join me for this episode of Beyond Boundaries. Please consider checking out the Patreon page and supporting the Beyond Boundaries podcast if you're able. That's patreon.com forward slash Beyond Boundaries podcast. You can also help by sharing, subscribing, rating, and reviewing the podcast. It makes a huge difference. Hope you enjoy this episode of Beyond Boundaries. Hey friends, just want to give you some context for this particular podcast episode. I interviewed Drew Hart on May 26th, uh, so last week, and May 26th would be the day after George Floyd was murdered. And so uh, we talked briefly about that. Uh, That video was beginning to um, go around. We also talk a lot about racism, especially um, as it relates to the church. And so if you're here and you consider yourself a part of the church or you hope that the church could be what it's really meant to be. Uh, this hopefully will be a, a conversation that that gives you some encouragement and also some challenge. We all hopefully are being challenged in this time to grow, um, to consider how our views need to change and evolve, and um, ultimately to fight for justice. And so I just want to say, um, if you're out there, uh, this is a time where, where hopefully we're elevating black voices. And I'm so thankful that I got this opportunity to interview Drew and uh, to bring this to, to you. And hopefully uh, you'll find it encouraging and also challenging. Please read Drew's book as a church right now at the Belong Collective. We're actually reading through Drew's book together, the book Trouble I've Seen. And uh, his, his new book is coming out in the fall. And we talk about that in the episode. So uh, here it is, my conversation with Drew Hart. All right, I am here with Drew Hart, author of Trouble I've Seen, Changing the Way the Church Views Racism, Drew's new book, Who Will Be a Witness, Igniting Activism for God's Justice, Love, and Deliverance, comes out in September. Drew is a theology professor at Messiah College. Drew, welcome to Beyond Boundaries. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Justin. Glad to be here. Glad to be in conversation with you. How are you doing amid the pandemic? Like, How are you and your family holding up? We are, we're surviving, you know, it's, it's hit us a little bit. And uh, so my wife is out of work, but, um, but we're surviving. And as a family, we have kind of found new rhythms and trying to be good neighbors. You know, I think that's the key. That's yeah. That's so important being good neighbors. It's a, it's a new, it's a new context of what it looks like to be a neighbor. I've actually interestingly got to know my neighbors better in this time because we're just home more. We're around the house more. We're, out in the yard more waving and then eventually like even though it's keeping social distance like having more conversations with our neighbors than ever in an odd way but uh but yeah trying to love your neighbor amid this can be as easy as putting a mask on even (laughs) right absolutely Absolutely. um yeah mask on and there's a uh, one lady that we've um checked up on who's elderly from our church in the neighborhood and so getting her groceries and we take walks, me and my wife, we take walks um, around the block, a couple blocks, but we go around like three times. So neighbors that we probably hadn't seen as much, we're seeing all the time now. So yeah, 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 I, I get that. So, well, uh, I, I want to dive right in uh, just to maximize our time together. Your first uh, book, the subtitle was uh, Changing the Way the Church Views Racism. And your book came out in 2016, if, I, if I'm correct. Yep. How, how do you think the church has changed, if at all, in the ways it, uh, it views racism or understands racism in the last four years? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that there's no single story to that, right? Um, yeah. I'd say broadly, um, there's lots of Christians that haven't changed one bit, right? Yeah. Um, and so they're still engaging in the same kind of frameworks. And since Black Lives Matter up till today, nothing really has changed. The white mainstream churches kind of perceiving things from their vantage point and from their own lived experience and their own assumptions. And so highly individualistic, usually biased, anti-black and preferential to white people and police systems and law and order and all that kind of stuff. However, though, um, I, I get the, the benefit of traveling and speaking all over the country, especially to churches. And I've actually gotten to see that there is this other side, right? That there are churches that are waking up that are having really hard conversations about white supremacy for the very first time, that are re, um, you know, reevaluating their mission and values and practices as it relates to white supremacy and how their, their own commitments, their own ministries. And so there's some exciting stuff happening. Um, and so there's some churches really expanding and kind of having a more in-depth look at the systemic and structural ways that racism shapes our society. So there's some hope, but there's also a lot of problems still going on. Yeah. And I mean, today on social media, obviously this is everywhere. George Floyd, which I'm sure we're only going to learn more over the next few days and about him and his life and, and what transpired. But I mean, from what I saw of the video, it's just, I don't know. It just looks absolutely ridiculous. Like, um, the the police officer using excessive force on somebody who's already handcuffed already on their stomach on the ground and I, it's just like we see this over and over and over again and what i mean obviously i'm asking you because this is something that your book covers and i, I would assume your your upcoming book covers and i know it's something that you speak a lot about and you and i have had conversations about this previous but like what what do we do here like i'm i'm i i come to the point of like this is a race a racism issue 100% but it's also a policing issue of how did this person ever think they had the power to just do that like you know that that's a that now i i do 100% wonder if that individual was white would that happen and and i'm inclined to say it's a lot less likely to happen um but at the same time we have kind of two problems that aren't exclusively separate, right? Policing and the way in which police police, right? Especially, especially poorer neighborhoods and neighborhoods of color. And then we also just have the collective white privilege and racism that exists in our world, whether you're a police officer or not. Can you just speak on that a little bit and maybe even speak? I don't know if you've seen the video of George Floyd and obviously it wasn't that long ago that we, saw the video of Ahmaud Ar Ar Arbery and like, as you're seeing these things develop and writing on this subject, what's going through your head? What's going through your thoughts of like real change that could make a difference in these areas? Yeah, well, and I'll start out by saying I didn't watch the full video. I have seen scrolling down little clips. I decided today I wasn't in the right place to be watching another black man die. But, um, but I've read the description of what happened to him. Um, and honestly, the first thing that came to mind, to my mind was 
um, when I lived in Philly, I had a neighbor, my, my next door neighbor, actually two doors down from us, row homes, but just two doors down. And um, him getting arrested, he was drunk one night, and was just a little rowdy, but not like hurting anybody. Police came, arrested, uh, handcuffed him, had him down, face down, and just in that same exact posture with like his knee pressed down to like kind of between his back and his neck. Um, and so that like the image just like, went there immediately you know just seeing that and me feeling helpless at that moment like I can't do anything to help my neighbor and seeing the way that he's being you know just treated like not even a human being right just the brutality of it and he wasn't killed but but just that kind of brutality into just how every day that kind of exercise of I mean I could call it power but domination over other people just because mm -hmm. you can right um it's just too common. Um, and so for every one time someone is killed, there's thousands more times where people are just being brutalized and humiliated in their own neighborhoods. Um, so what can we do about it? I mean, I think, you know, it's going to take a broad scale, sustained, active movement that resists, right? Mm -hmm. And it's going to require white people to, to, wake up and to take a stance because the fact of the matter is, is black people have always been resisting um but but things can change more so when white people will link arms and and stand in solidarity with black people as we're suffering um that's more likely to bring more change uh, when white people refuse to uh go along with the system refuse to be silenced refuse to turn the other way and stand there and resist and speak up and challenge the the laws the policies the structures the authorities that are in place that continue to harm black people hmm. yeah that's so good i think recognizing the privilege that we have as white people and and choosing to use that to first to listen to the black experience in america to understand to, to to try to understand it to the best of our ability and then try to try to champion a, a, a different path forward. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I'm at a point to where I'm like, you know, there was a part of me with Ahmaud Arbery that I, I felt hopeful because after that I was having conversations with people who I talked to after Trayvon Martin that, would not talk about that in any like meaningful way. Does that make sense? Like in any yeah. Yeah, way absolutely. of championing change. But I'm also, I also kind of feel bad about that when, I, when I'm like, well, how many people have to die before? How many videos do you have to see? Or how many stories do you have to hear before you finally get to the, and it's like, I don't want to punish someone for getting to the party late in a sense. You know what I mean? So for getting to this right. conversation for like, I, I want to meet you where you're at, but I also, you know, it's this, it's this tension I have as a pastor, right? Because like, I want a journey with someone who really does not in any way, shape or form understand the black experience in America. And that has informed their worldview, just not understanding it. And I want to be gracious, but I'm also like, I, that, that's how it's just hard work because they typically have a, a, a lot of misinformation, misguidance, um, and allegiances that are difficult in the in the process of uh, exposing them to the realities of racism in our world and the outcomes and how 
there are people simply because of their skin color that have a very different experience than you. That alone can be a hard thing to convince some people of. I grew up in rural Indiana. I mean, I, I grew up in a predominantly white you know, area. And for me, that, that um, largely shaped my worldview until I lived in Boston and I lived in a community that was, you know, 97% Dominican American, African American. And that, that, that neighborhood in Boston just shattered so many of my preconceived ideas, thoughts, worldviews that were handed to me by my, and it's like, I almost want to take everyone to, to that moment that I had, you know what I mean? To have those relationships and to, to do that. But it's like, they don't, they don't get to have that experience. What are you seeing that some, how some white people are journeying with their fellow, you know, um, white brothers and sisters to, to poke and prod and push them toward action and toward even the mental shift that needs to happen while also championing grace. Cause I know that's something you're about too. Like, who are you seeing that's doing that well? And what are they, what are they doing? That's, that's unique. Yeah. I mean, I, and I think even how, like, what, what do we mean even when we say we're showing grace, I think is an important question to explore. Right. Because yeah. I think for some people, grace um, can mean, engaging them a little bit, but making, but not to the point where that person ever gets uncomfortable because you don't mm. want to make, you don't want tension in the relationship, right? And so some people think that that's ex expressing grace. Um, but I think what I've seen is that when I see white people who, um, well, and let me say on the other hand, there's some white people on the very other end. And I think a lot of white progressives fall into this camp where they start waking up and then they have no time or patience for anybody that, you know, doesn't see things like they do anymore <laughs> yeah. and they act like they've always been there. Right. So that's the other yeah. extreme. Right. Yeah. Um, I forget that they were also on a journey. Um, but, but I do think, you know, the graciousness is in speaking truthfully and lovingly, but, but telling hard truths that are actually good for that person because you want them to become the person, uh, a more fully human person, right. That doesn't, mm -hmm. that's not as complicit in, the oppression and harm of other people. And so I think the grace is in the commitment that you are not giving up on them and that you believe in them and that, that they can be better than what, where, where they are right now. Right. Um, yeah. And so the grace refuses to cut off ties, um, but we'll also say hard things at times. Right. Um, mm -hmm. That, and, and realizes that while you might not burn the bridge, the other person may, and you can't always control what the other person is going to do, right? Mm -hmm. um, but you can make the invitation and be there for them and show up, but speak truth into their life in a way that honors them as somebody that, you know, like there's a book um, called White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo. Yeah. She's a white woman and she talks about how white people are just fragile, right? In, in terms of sometimes how they respond to racism. Well, the fact of the matter is you love someone, like don't treat them, don't coddle them like they can't treat them like a full human being and have a real conversation with them and challenge them to be better, right? Um, and so I think that that's also part of the work is finding that way to be gracious. And so in the same way that, you know, King talked about loving your enemies, his loving your enemies wasn't coddling them and leaving them where they're at. It was confronting them with the truth and resisting the harm that they're doing. And at the same time, because King refused to try to destroy his enemy, right? He was... He always left space where they could convert 
and become go from enemy to friend, right? That was always mm -hmm. an option on the table. And I think that that's the kind of graciousness is the love that tries, seeks to overcome evil um, rather than just letting it fester and cultivate on its own because you don't want to disrupt the apple cart. Mm, that's so good. You, you speak of King and I know you have roots in Anabaptism. Are you, would you consider yourself, you would consider yourself like a champion of nonviolence in, in your approach? Yeah. So I talk about, I don't use the word pacifism to describe um, where I'm at, but I use the word peacemaking and nonviolence. Peacemaking in terms of, I think that that's for me a better way to describe the ethic of what Jesus lived, the theological ethic that we're invited into, always seeking shalom where we are. Um, and that includes loving enemies and non-retaliation and finding creative ways to overcome evil with good. Um, and then I, I use the term nonviolence to describe the strategic ways of engaging in social change, right? Um, so these are strategies for, for change um, that, that especially oppressed people have available to them where, you know, let's say in the United States, um, if Black people try to throw a, a violent uprising against the nation. I mean, this country's got military power beyond anything yeah. the world has ever seen, right? We could all be wiped out in seconds easily. Um, but in nonviolence, um, it, it kind of changes the power dynamics precisely because you refuse to play by the terms that the empire wants to, right? Mm -hmm. Violence versus violence. And so while I can recognize someone like Nat Turner as having courage, and Nat Turner, by the way, is the slave rebellion um, from the 1800s who led a really powerful slave rebellion, and then they all were wiped out, and he was, like, skinned and killed. And, I mean, I, I won't lie. Like, I can get some inspiration from him at times, but I also don't want to see my whole family wiped out. And I believe that more consistent to the peacemaking of Jesus is the strategies of nonviolence. Uh, where we find creative ways to um, challenge the system and accept the consequences that come with that. Does that flow from like a pragmatism or does it, I mean, obviously it flows from Jesus, but like, would you say that comes from Anabaptist roots? Like, do you consider yourself an Anabaptist as well? I consider myself an Anabaptist, um, but in probably not always by what others mean by that. That's what I was going to, I was going to ask that because I have a tension with Anabaptism. And so I wanted to know what you think about Anabaptism, especially as it relates to um, my, minority groups. Cause I sometimes feel like some of the, the conclusions that, that the Anabaptist theology makes can be a conclusion of, well, well, yeah, that's kind of a privileged position to just be able to say, well, we're just going to be separate. Well, some people can't separate themselves from, this reality. Does that make sense? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's no question that today, um, many Anab white Anabaptists and white Neo-Anabaptists, I'd say, have domesticated their interpretation of the tradition. Um, but you got to remember that in the 16th century, number one, it was a very diverse thing that was exploding off the ground. But this was a movement it, that was in congruity, in congruency with the poor people's rebellions that are taking place in the 16th century. There's a mm -hmm. lot of overlap, right? Yeah. Um, and so these are poor, desperate people for the most part, um, in, in which these communities that have extreme uh, critiques on the economic system and on the political system and on the church state relations, right? And so they're making a, a radical break from the system 
Um, but not all, there's a whole variety of ways that people engage, including, I mean, even the 16th century, there's some that took up violence, right? And so I'd say number one, the, on the broadest sense of it, especially from a 16th century sense, is the conversation around peace and violence is the starting points of wrestling with what is Jesus calling us to? Because I think prior to that, that wasn't even a question on the table. Um, and so I think first is that question. Secondly, it's not uh, neutral as it relates to the economic order, right? Um, the Anabaptists of the 16th century had uh, identified and were in solidarity with poor people. And I think that poor and vulnerable people aren't necessarily, uh, white Anabaptists aren't necessarily today always found in solidarity with poor and vulnerable people in society. Um, so that's another way. And then I think that, yeah, the, the political imagination of Anabaptists say, sometimes I'll hear the language, and it's actually a distortion of the term. They'll use the term third way. We're going to use the third way. But often when, when I hear them talking about the third way, it's not how it was originally imagined. So third way, when you hear it today, it's like, oh, we're going, it, it's like, you know, got Democrats and you got Republicans and we're not going to be in that. So we're going the third way. And it tends to be like this kind of centrist position. Mm -hmm. But third way didn't mean centrist position. It meant that look at Jesus and how he related to the options of social movements uh, around him in his society. You have Sadducees that are part of the establishment. You have Pharisees that think that their piety um, will please God and somehow that will change the situation. You have zealots who are violently overthrowing. And Jesus, in some ways, looks very much like the zealots, except he's a nonviolent messiah, right? A nonviolent revolutionary. Yeah. And so he's still aligned with the oppressed. Um, there's still a clear articulation from him, right? That the spirit of the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus then goes out and does that, right? And so mm -hmm. there's no question that, that there's a deep commitment in solidarity with the poor and oppressed, the least, last, and lost of society. And I think that gets, again, domesticated and watered down sometimes, not by all, but by many white Anabaptists and neo-Anabaptists in a way that I think doesn't reflect 16th century Anabaptism and certainly doesn't reflect the way of Jesus. Um, and so I think that Jesus is more radical than that. And so going back to your initial question about the, the ethics and the pragmatism, like I would say, I always start with the ethics of Jesus first, right? Which is why I say peacemaking, right? I'm, I, I'm, I believe that we're called to be peacemakers, seeking the way of Jesus and seeking shalom in this world, right? The well-being and flourishing of all. And at the same time, as, as we do that, I'm thinking about what are the strategies that are most conducive to do that work in the midst of being in a, what we could call a um, democratic Republic, right? Mm -hmm. um, which is not what Jesus lived in. And it's not even what the 16th century Anabaptists lived in. And so yeah. we need some imagination about how to live in this world best. But I think those strategies, you could say it is pragmatic and also faithful, right? It's both of those things. I yeah. don't think you have to necessarily choose between the two, mm -hmm. uh, but it's trying to find um, wh where do those things converge? And I think that that's where nonviolence takes us. Yeah, no, that's so good. And I do... I think exactly what you said is the tension I feel. I sometimes think people use third way language as a way of bolstering up neutrality on a, a subject matter in which the church should not be neutral. Like That's right. we should have a side, like, like not because we're in the business of choosing sides, but we're in the business of championing 
justice, like right. in, in that place, like um, when wrong is being done, we need to be um, a voice in, in that space. Um, yeah. And so we can't go halvesies. That's what I always yeah, say. Exactly. Like, it doesn't make any sense. It, it'd be like imagining um, under Nazi, the Holocaust, and we're saying we want to go halvesies, right? We'll yeah. Meet halfway in the middle. No, you don't meet halfway in the middle. You, no. you, we always take risks on behalf of being faithful to God to take a stand, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you just have to. And it's not to say that we are perfect either in what we do, but you can't play neutral to these matters that are so important and, and death-dealing forces at work in people's lives. Yeah, another thing I hear a lot in Anabaptism, and, I, and by the way, I just want to make it very clear. I'm not trying to be super hypercritical of Anabaptism. I actually really love it at baptism it's kind of what brought me back to the faith when i had kind of a crisis uh, of faith um so there's a lot about anabaptism i adopt but um kind of the separatism even from the standpoint of like we're kingdom people we're not of the world like um like i've heard a lot of anabaptists i know be like i don't vote because i'm not of the world like you know what i mean and i'm like but like that's kind of a privileged position to have like because you're not, you're maybe not feeling, and I'm not saying all people who don't vote um, don't feel the consequences of the system. Does that make sense? There's some people who certainly don't vote that are suffering the worst of the consequences of the system. But I often find that the people who tell me they don't vote are people who usually the system's working okay for them and they act as if not voting is their rebellion against empire and i'm like actually maybe voting would be the best rebellion against empire you could have like like for or at least in the sense of like it would be create a more just empire for the most vulnerable have you considered that you know and so i I almost think sometimes that separatist mindset is fine to apply if you're dealing with a, a a government that doesn't give you a vote or a say but it's like if the government if Caesar gives you a say, then like, take it. Right. I mean, I, I, I kind of feel like, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Cause I feel like there's a tension there about supporting a candidate, especially because so many of our candidates, we don't a hundred percent agree with. I don't, you know, I don't know that there's ever been a candidate I voted for that I'm a hundred percent in agreement with. Um, it, it's usually you, you take a little bit of like stuff that you don't agree with and stuff that you do. Um, I'm just, I'm curious if you sense that there's that in Anabaptism as well, or or even in Christianity, maybe in some ways, like. Yeah, I mean, so, and I'll start out by saying I do vote, I'll start there. Um, But I will say, and I actually write about this, uh, and I won't get all into what I write about in my new book, but I get into this as one of the topics. Good. Um, And I actually make a case for voting and not voting. (laughs) Okay, okay. I do both, right? Good. So, Though my case for not voting is not the same case that what you hear from a lot of white neo-anabaptists and stuff like that, right? That kind of non-engagements. Um, I, I don't think that, I'm not, I, I'm not persuaded that that's actually a, 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 a strong appeal. Okay. <laughs> um, I'm, not, I'm not convinced. Um, but how, that said, like I do have like a friend, in fact, I'll, I'll quote Nikisha Alexis. She's one of the people I quote in my book. Um, who she's a black Mennonite who attends an AME church who identifies as anarchists, right? Oh my gosh. I need yeah. to have her on the podcast. Wow. Yeah, she's awesome. She's <laughs> awesome. And, and, um, and so she'll make the strong case. Number one, <clears throat> like nobody can tell me they're more, they're, 
there's a few people who can say they're more politically engaged than she is. She's just not politically engaged through the electoral process, but she's on the ground doing the work, right? Um, she's busy, she's organizing, she's movement work, all that kind of stuff in her neighborhood. And so for her, um, the question isn't um, whether we should be political or not and engage a society, it's in what way should we engage our society, right? That's her question. So she's, if anything, more radical, I think, than many folks are. Um, and so she'd even say that, and she, she actually shows research, and I quote it in the book about how, you know, in general, people who vote and see that as the primary means through which to make social change actually tend to be less radical, right? Because mm. um, you're trusting in the system a lot. Um, and so for her, that's one option, one reason why voting can actually domesticate your the radicality of your position because you're trusting in this, in the, the formal channels and are not as willing then to go outside of the formal channels. Interesting. Um, and so oftentimes more um, people who have been locked out of the formal channels will take more radical action. So you think about mm. black people, right? Um, for, I mean, it's interesting, and this is a pushback that I give in my book to my own community is in the black community, they'll say, oh, your, your ancestors, they died for the votes. But that's kind of misrepresenting history. I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that for 350 years, they didn't have the right to vote, but they weren't sitting on their butts that whole time. They were resisting and organizing and building and, you know, they're doing all kinds of stuff um, to resist that helped to create the conditions in which they could actually win the vote. So they actually won the vote with, by other means than the vote, right? Yeah. Um, and so it's actually a misrepresentation to think that the vote is the primary thing. So for me now, going back to on the other side, um, I do think that change, that it does make a difference when we vote. Um, in fact, you only have to look at how much gerrymandering is going on in black communities um, by yeah. white Republicans. And you, and you can see that clearly they don't want us to vote because there's some power behind it, right? Mm -hmm. um, there's some impact that it can have. Um, and so there's no question that it, it can make a difference. It, now that difference, it may not necessarily, it's not necessarily bringing utopia, right? Um, yeah. but, but sometimes little things can, can have a huge difference in terms of that. I mean, when, when you're talking about, you know, when, when Donald Trump got, I, I mean, almost immediately for the first time, I saw ICE agents all over my neighborhood in Harrisburg, right? In ways yeah. I had never seen before. And so um, the impact that that had was great because of, of who became president. So the impact can be significant and certainly in local poli uh, local politics that, that um, those implications could be even larger. So for me, my imagination then is, how do I not let the tail uh, wag the dog, right? Mm. Um, I think that the church's political imagination is often domesticated because we first and foremost um, align ourselves with these political parties and then allow the political parties to give us their platforms and then we just make those platforms are Christian ethics, right? Yeah. Um, and I think that that's a poor way to be a follower of Jesus. Um, I think we need a more radical imagination. So how do we on the grounds in conversation with those who are vulnerable and oppressed in our communities um, discern and, and, and get feedback really from their stories of what's happening in their own lives and allow those things to be the starting points uh, for, for what we're concerned about. We don't need to start with any platform given to us. <clears throat> And then from there, we 
participate in movements, grassroots movements on the ground and vote in con in congr uh, consistently with those movements that we're participating in, right? And I think that's a better posture for me. Um, let the the voting flow out of the work that we're doing on the ground in our in our communities, rather than letting these huge, massive political platforms that often don't they don't represent us. They don't represent anybody. I mean, it's, they represent you know um, big donors and and political machines and think tanks and stuff. You know what I mean? Like they, yeah. and so it's not it's not my voice that's being represented by that. And so I think uh, we need a new way of engaging um, from the bottom up rather than from the top down. Mm, that's good. You, you mentioned your new book. Uh, am I right that it's coming out in September? Yep. September 1st. Okay. I pre-ordered it. So I thought it said September. Good deal. I'm looking forward to reading that. Can you give people like a brief synopsis of that book, why they should pre-order it? What, what it's, what, what you cover in there? If they, if they have read trouble, I've seen what, how this is different and what yeah. it is. Yeah, um, so I don't have my elevator speech worked out. But, <laughs> That's um, all right. <laughs> no, no, but uh, let's see. Well, let me say this. I wrote the book um, because when I was traveling around the country engaging Christians and their awakening to these issues around racial justice and, you know, how white supremacy shapes their world and all that stuff, and I'm calling them at the end to these practices and some of it's, like, you know, pursuing justice and solidarity with the oppressor and all that. And, and people are saying, all right, that sounds great, but I have no idea what this looks like. I have no mm. idea where to begin with this. And so that was the, the spark for why I felt like I needed to write this book. Um, the book though, um, it does a, a range of things. In some ways, it's not one thing, it's multiple things that all kind of work together well. But the goal is ultimately to um, help the church engage faithfully in justice work and work for social change in, the, in their society, right? And so um, some of it is helping them see a more radical Jesus, the undomesticated, decolonized Jesus, um, this nonviolent uh, insurrectionist, sometimes I like to call him, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so kind of um, liberating Jesus from the, the entrapments and the captivity that we've had him in for so long. Um, but there's, so there's some of that kind of stuff. There's some history. Um, some of it does get into um, like history around Christendom and colonialism and white supremacy and the role that the church has played in all of that. Because I think that we haven't grasped the way that that has deeply shaped um, what it means to be a Christian. And some of the reasons why I think so many people are turned off from Christianity is because of the power dynamics and the way that they harm, uh, marginalize and oppress people in our society. Um, and, it's, and so we have to grapple with the history, the legacy, how colonialism and white supremacy has shaped the church mm -hmm. in, in significant ways. I mean, we just haven't grasped fully all that, that that has meant. And so there's some of that and some history around black prophetic traditions and people who spoke up and resisted. Um, I get into some chapters around the local church itself. Um, and so thinking about how the church can go through change internally because if we can't be inclusive internally then how are we going to call the broader society to be something that we're not willing to be right and so kind of thinking about our practices and how we engage one another and reimagine what it means to be a church in a more dialogical way a little mm -hmm. more not top down again but a little more what it means to actually be a community right a vulnerable community and as well also engaging the idea around how worship relates to justice work 
um, because so many times our worship is this this kind of generic God that we're worshiping, and it, it we lose sight of the God that liberated the Israelites out of Egypt, right? This deliverer and this God of justice, um, mm. and this God that's manifested in the person of Jesus Christ. Um, and so, kind of get into the question of how does worship and justice relate to one another and also some of the practices of the church and how that relate to one another. Um, but then towards the end of the book, I really get into um, social change theory. And so um, I do get into stuff around nonviolence, um, okay. to organizing theory, protest movement theory, I get into electoral politics and talk about that. Um, and some other stuff, um, but a, a range of stuff just to help the church, very practical ways to think about engaging. And my whole thing is because for me, like I've seen in participating in these movements, I've seen how like organizers, they hate protest movement stuff and, and they think that they're the only way to do it. And, and for me, there's lots of different ways. And so for me, I'd rather help people understand what it is and say, the church is free to do all or any of these things or none of, you know what I mean? Like we can be yeah. creative. We don't have to get stuck with one strategy, um, but we can participate in what we feel is conducive to pursuing um, more shalom in our communities. Um, and then the very last chapter is called um, the politics of love. And so looking at Dr. King, Howard Thurman, Jonah, mm -hmm. some others, um, and thinking yeah. about what it means to actually love and, and not to where the church is, often caught with what I call the love gap, where there's some people that we don't love. Um, how do we love everybody in a way that is indiscriminate, right? And, and um, is perfect love, just like Jesus calls us to, where we don't just love those like us or who are with us, but we love everybody. Mm, that's good. Wow, there's a lot in that book then. I'm looking forward to yeah. checking it's, that out. It is longer than Trouble. It's almost 300 pages. So it's about 100 pages longer than Trouble wow. I've seen. So yeah. Okay, good deal. Um, you mentioned in there, um, like protesting and activism, organizing. Yeah. I know you've done a lot of work or at least been a part of the Poor People's Campaign. Um, tell me a little bit about that and why that's something that, um, I mean, I'm, I'm writing that, right? I feel like I've seen you through social media being a part of some different um, resistance in that regard, correct? I've done some with them. Um, so I would say that's not what I've done the most of, but I actually, okay. um, so a couple summers ago, I was pretty, I was attending most of the, um, the PA stuff because because we're in Harrisburg, I was, yeah. you know, partnering with that. So I was present for those. Um, and, and some of what, I love about the poor people's campaign and partnering with them um, is, well, number one, they're reviving Dr. King's own poor people's campaign, right? So that's yeah. the, it's his vision of bringing poor people together across all racial lines, right? Because we need a radical revolution of values in this country as it relates to our economy and poor people. And so mm -hmm. being explicit about that and how it interrelates to things like militarism, um, ecological devastation, um, mass incarceration, education, all these things, right? And so that's what this movement is doing. It's bringing all these issues. Sometimes people are fighting in silos when these are interrelated issues that need to yeah. be addressed together. And so um, so I like that they're doing that and they have a movement that almost every state in the country has people who are working on the ground in, in concert with this. And so they've organized organizations, right? So you got um, folks who've been working on fight for 15 and, you know, uh, prison reform and all these things collaborating together. And I love to see that happening. 
And I also love that they take a hybrid approach where they're willing to do stuff that is both organizing kind of methodology, but also movement kind of basis, like kind of merging them together. And so that's kind of my vibe. Um, so yeah, nice. th so that's um, something that's happening. And I think, you know, that for that to work, it's going to have to be ongoing, um, sustains growing movements, right? And so hopefully we'll see more people getting involved with um, stuff like that. Um, some of the other stuff though, like locally, like I've done more stuff with like Power Interfaith and Milpa and okay. um, some of those movements here locally. What, that, what are um, those? What's, what's Power Interfaith for people? So Power, um, they are, they started in Philly. So I knew them from back in my Philly days, but then they kind of been expanding out. Um, their focus has been mostly as they've been expanding um, in central PA, more focused on um, education funding. Um, public education funding because basically Pennsylvania has a terrible it's just horrible in terms of how the state funds are being distributed um, mm. it's extremely racist so basically the more um, the the more people of color in a school district the more they're being underfunded the whiter a school district the more you know they're being overfunded and we're not talking about I'm not talking about the tax base because that's the taxes that contribute, which is also a problem, that's about like 60%, right, of a school's, you know, income in terms of where their, the revenue, where they get their funds from. But about 35 to 40% um, comes from the state. And it's the state itself that's not actually using their fair funding formula. Um, um, most of the money's not going through the fair funding formula. And so there's this really extremely racist way in which it's being distributed, which is based on old patterns that nobody wants to challenge. And basically, it's going to take white communities, um, especially white suburban communities that are being overfunded to be willing to be willing to, um, you know, basically say we're, we're willing to have less so that the actual amount that we should be getting will get and the, and that we have a more equitable distribution of funds. Right. And so that's yeah. one of the things that, that I've worked with them on. Milpa, on the other hand, works with undocumented immigrants. Mm. And so um, they've been, yeah, just, journeying for a very long time they've just been journeying with them and trying to create some policy change i know right now they're doing stuff around um, driver's licenses trying to um, have access for people who are undocumented to have driver's licenses as well as even um, exploring um, sanctuary city stuff for harrisburg as well probably not under that name just because it's so um it's a yeah it's, polarized. Buzz, yeah, it's a polarized term, so they'll probably yeah. use a different term. But but anyway, so I've gotten to do a little bit with them and definitely want to support them. And so I try to often um, connect church leaders with um, Milpa and the work that they're doing um, here in our city. Mm. That's awesome. That's awesome. Do you do anything with uh, heating, uh, heating God's call to end gun violence? Um, so I haven't, I, you know, I have, I have been invited to like give a prayer. I, I actually had a conflict and wasn't able to do it. When I first lived in Harrisburg, initially I had done, a, I had like been to some of the vigils. I haven't really been as involved, um, coming back. Mm. Um, uh, so I won't say anything bad cause they're connected to, uh, there's a lot of folks connected to my own church who are involved in that stuff. Um, and it's important work to highlight the, the gun violence that certainly disproportionately impacts black people in our city. Um, I would like, I wish that they did more preventative stuff mm -hmm. um, and not just the vigils after the facts. And so I know like in Philly, the, the chapter in Philly, sometimes like they, um, 
like protested and shut down like you know gun shops that were doing straw purchases and things like yeah. that and so you know i had friends who were involved in some of that um I, yeah I, I i was with i worked i was with um with shane claiborne in yeah two or three years ago and we we protested outside of Toomey's office and yeah. uh, like shut down that, that building pretty much yeah. like no one could get in or out. Right. <laughs> got right. us arrested of course, but that was, right. the, whole, that right. was the whole point. Like That's the whole point. bring right. awareness to this, not wait for, uh, you know, uh, a, a, an assault rifle to make its you know way into another school, but maybe right. bring, you know, and I think a lot of people are like, what good was that? You know, I've had conversations with friends that are like, what good was that? Well, I'm like, well, at least, at least it started a conversation. I'm willing to, you know, put right. myself out there and, and have that if it means we can actually have some type of conversation or bring, you know, awareness to it. I think it's about using your privilege and your platform right. to like, to at least hopefully start a dialogue because sometimes it does take those like images of what you got like that, that like shock for a second of like, you know, when my friends found out I got arrested, it was like, are you okay? I was getting phone calls and texts and stuff. I'm like, I'm fine. Like it wasn't like a violent arrest or anything. It was like most, it was weird actually, because most of the police officers were like, we actually agree with what you're saying. Like, uh, because for many of them, they don't have assault weapons and they they know other people do, you know? So for them, they, they're, they're kind of for, you know, an assault weapon ban many that we at least were talking to that day. And, um, and so it wasn't like a, a violent thing. And I'm just, and it was a great ability to kind of like spark a conversation with a lot of people that I would never talk about that with, you know what I mean? Right. And I think that that's the purpose I think of activism is to, to draw attention to, to draw uh, minds and hearts and, and, and hopefully connect people to listen in a new way. Cause sometimes it takes that like abrupt, like, Whoa, that's a weird image everything got shut down or, or, Oh man, I'm inconvenienced today. Why am I being inconvenienced? Because someone's trying to bring attention to this over here. And that can be something that just makes you frustrated, but it also can be something that shakes you, get your attention and makes you look at it in maybe a different way or draws attention to something that you would never otherwise even see. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, you know, there's no, like I often say, like, you know, when, when we engage in nonviolent, you know, actions, like there's never any guarantee that any one single event is going to like, you know, like, I mean, every now and then there's like this big spark, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the sustained work, especially in times where people are more apathetic, is that sustained work that keeps it alive and keeps conversations going, yeah. um, where otherwise people would just be ignoring it altogether. And then sometimes, you know, people talk about the whirlwind, right? Sometimes, um, you engage in a particular action and it wasn't, it didn't even have to be anything particularly grand. And for whatever reason, it strikes in a different way for society, right? And next thing you know, there's change happening. Um, but I think we need sustained witnesses to a better way. And so um, I think, it, yeah, I think when we decide to do it, we can't do it because we think we're guaranteeing any outcome, but we're just trying to be faithful yeah. and trying to bear witness to a better way however we can. And so we do it creatively and consistently as as we can. Yeah. I like that word bearing witness and being a witness to something because, yeah, because I think that to me, that describes how I want to use my privilege, right? I don't want to use my privilege to be like, I've got all the answers. Like I think a lot of uh, white people will run to problems of race when they first apparent, you know, wake up to it maybe and come to it with a ton of solutions. And it's like, you haven't like, 
like there's a lot to, to absorb here, you know, before you start throwing out solutions. And then there's the reality that it's like a lot of your solutions aren't taking into account a lot of things you just haven't seen, you know what I mean? Or, or come yeah. to know, but, but even just bearing witness and like when, when Ahmad Arbery, you know, when that happened, it was like, we are talking about this on Sunday morning. Our, we're, I'm going to bear witness to this as a pastor. Like, yeah. like I, I feel an obligation to do that as a pastor, but also as, as a white man, like not to come to it with, I have all the answers, but to say, we have to place our attention here. Um, this, this has to be something we don't look away from. Like, you know, and that's where I think, I don't know. And, and I don't know what you would have to say to people who are listening that maybe, you know, are coming from that pos position of privilege. Like, how can we be good, um, you know, witnesses or how, what, like, how can we bear witness? Well, especially if we have privilege to do so, like, what, what are some things that you think some just practical things? Yeah. And I, I like the word practical because I was going to, I was going to start with practices, right? What kind of yeah. practices can help us bear witness? Right. And so I think, you know, um, so often, as you already described, like white people, they come in and there's almost like, you know, the savior complex, it's going and people want to start solving problems. Um, and I think really, you know, one of the most important practices is learning how to follow, right? Like sometimes mm. some folks need to learn how to, like when you're socialized to think that you're always supposed to lead, to be the leader, sometimes it's precisely then that you need to learn how to follow. Mm. And I think that there's something meaningful about the hierarchy getting flipped where the first are last and the last are first and where people don't just follow because they're told they're supposed to, but because they actually believe that there's something that they're going to gain and be, and grow from in that process, right? That they themselves need trans transformation, that they need healing and liberation in themselves, not just the people who are oppressed, right? Yeah. And so when we can actually grasp that, that, um, that we all need something out of this, yeah, yeah, black and brown people might need liberation from white supremacy, but white people also need liberation from white supremacy, right? Yeah. Um, and so then, then, it's, then we're coming as equals, but equals in a way that flips the hierarchy upside down on its head and bears witness that another way is possible. Um, and that people can willingly and voluntarily choose to follow, even when society says, you know, they're socialized to be in this space and to speak first, right? That they can choose, no, I'm not going to speak first. I'm going to listen first and be slow to speak, right? Um, and I think that those postures, those practices, can really be powerful. And I think people would notice um, when, when they see, like I just the other, so um, I'm co-hosting a podcast with Jared McKenna, who's a oh, pastor yeah. and, um, and a peace activist from Australia. Uh -huh. And we're leading this kind of book study, actually on Trouble I've Seen. And one of the things we're doing is we installed some practices, right? That just shape conversation. And so basically I said, as a rule, like, um, for conversation, I want those who've been taught to, you know, be slow to speak. I want you to step forward and speak first. Those who are prone to speak first, I want you to step back and let other people speak first. Mm. And then I said more specifically, because we break them out into small groups. When you break them into small groups, I want you to let the women of color speak first, <laughs> right? Um, let them go first and then other people jump in, right? And so 
by doing so, it can flip some of the expectations and hierarchies that are so, um, you know, we're just so deeply kind of oriented towards. And, and what's happened is, is that the women of color in the group, because they've never been told that they're going to be leading the conversation. I mean, the very first day that we did it, um, half the comments towards the end were about just how, you know, how uh, they just felt uh, affirmed, how they felt loved, how they felt listened to, how they had never had white people in particular, they say, listen to them like that and actually, and not just listen to them, but actually care, right? Like they were yeah. genuinely caring about what they had to say. And so we structured around listening. And but anyway, it's these practices that are in place. So anyway, that's just one example that we can constantly think about our different practices and embody new ways of being in community with others. And that should include, um, if you're trying to get involved in justice work, like join in, but don't try to re recreate the wheel, right? Figure out who's already been leading and, and join in and follow and, and grow from that place. And that will be an awesome place to build relationships and to get a better understanding, right? You'll, you will quickly yeah. get a, a quick, you know, uh, on the ground education on what's going on in people's lives because they'll be sharing their stories and you'll get firsthand experience as you're linked arms with uh, those who are first, who are impacted directly. Yeah. And that, that podcast is called the inverse podcast, correct? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Inverse podcast. Yeah. yeah. Is that, can that be found anywhere? Or is it on a particular platform? Yeah. You should be able to find that anywhere. Yep. Okay. Great. Great. Very good. Okay. I have one last question for you. Um, and I'll get you out of here on this. And this is a little bit of a long question. So, I mean, it might okay. be a long question. It might open up a little bit of a Pandora's box, but okay. I, I find this to be something that I'm interested in your opinion on, not necessarily related to race, but it is kind of related to race. Um, yeah. In that, you know, you're a professor at, 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 at uh, I guess I, I would call it an evangelical institution. I don't know that Messiah necessarily is that, but like, um, yeah. and, and you'd probably do a lot of speaking engagements at, churches that would call themselves evangelical. What do you think the future of evangelicalism is? Like, do you think it can be saved now that it's, I mean, it already was very much attached to the moral majority way back in Falwell's yeah. days, but like, right. I feel like, I feel like this is like 2.0 <laughs> compared to yeah. that. Like, it's like a whole new, like there, all you have to do is look at the metrics of, you know, even white evangelicals put Trump into office and, and just some of like what white evangelicalism champions seems to be so in many ways antithetical to uh, racial reconciliation of any kind. And I I'm curious what you think the future, like, do you think there's going to be some sort of rebirth or do you think there's a necessary death and like that word's just not going to be able to to make it. I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on that or anything, anything offshooting that, that is your opinion about that. I like to, I like to talk to leaders in evangelical spaces about their thoughts on that. Cause I have my own opinions, but I like to hear theirs. Yeah. Yeah, no, this is a really good question. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think it's fair to say Messiah, at least it's the majority of the student body, certainly is evangelical. I mean, mm -hmm. It's not exclusively, but yeah, that's sure. certainly a large portion. And even, portions of the faculty right are are very evangelical as well so, although i would say most of them are not you know hardcore sure, right? sure but nonetheless evangelicalism certainly runs through and is a part of the ethos and messiah tries to um 
make space for, right? Because that's just a big portion of their, the student body. And so yeah. they, I think they depend on evangelicals. So yeah. And so, yeah. to be clear, I'm not saying all evangelicals are support Trump or all evangelicals. Oh, no, no, fall I'm into not that. even and you're not, you're not saying you. that either. Yeah. You're yeah, not, you're yeah, not yeah. saying that either. I guess I just want to make that clear to anybody listening who maybe doesn't understand yeah. the dynamics of, of evangelicalism. Cause yeah. I do think there's people practicing the tenets of evangelicalism that are doing it in a healthy way is what I guess I'm saying. I just don't think those people are currently rising to the top and that terminology. And they're the exception to the rule. Yeah. And that terminology may actually be unhelpful because it lumps them in with a group of people that are predominantly not championing those particular values. So yeah. Yeah. No, no. There's no question that there, that the, the evangelicals that seem to have a moral imagination are the exception to the rule. There's no question, right? Yeah. I mean, 81% of evangelicals supported Donald Trump. Um, and and that was on him running on a platform of law and order, right? In response to Black Lives Matter and Kaepernick, to banning Muslims, to building the wall and the rapists and all that kind of stuff, to, you know, grabbing women by their, you know what? Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, that was, that was his, before he became president and then he began to try to actually execute those things that he promised he would. So, um, and they've, for the most part, most evangelicals have, have been very quiet. There's been some that have spoken up, but that's again, a minority um, Mm -hmm. out of those who identify as white evangelical. Um, So my, I mean, I, I think I said it like, I think overall as a movement, um, the movement is morally bankrupt right now. I think there was a putting it. That's yeah. There was a time when, you know, evangelicals prior to like during slavery, like they had a social imagination in terms of social problems and slavery, things like that. You know, Um, not that everyone was for, but but there was this kind of social imagination that they had to engage the society in that kind of way, and that's been since you know civil war probably. I don't know. Mm. Um, It's just been on decline, and right now it's just it's an embarrassment, right? Um, I would say it's a vandalization of Jesus's name. Every time they use Jesus's name, um, they vandalize the name of Jesus. And so, um, yeah, I, I, I think the hope there are, like, I, I'm always intrigued by like denominations like the Evangelical Covenant Church, which is definitely an evangelical denomination, but I always see them as a little different, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's some, uh, they have a different ethos overall, although they're struggling too. And, and I think they're having yeah. some internal fights <laughs> even in that denomination, but there's a lot of really good uh, churches and pastors and leaders in that denomination. Um, so I think, you know, I guess that there's groups like that, there's hope. Um, certainly I think there's many neo-Anabaptists that are evangelically oriented that at least help to soften evangelicalism some i think right Mm -hmm. yeah um and i would say that there are many black and brown churches that don't use the language evangelicalism and especially won't right now um because they see it as a racist movement but nonetheless i'd say some that share evangelical um values around i mean they'll use language like we're a bible believing church right and things like that but i mean they're evangelicals right um and so so all of those things, I guess, could potentially bring hope if there was actually actual engagement from white evangelicals with them. I would also uh, mention that 
globally, evangelicalism means something very different, right? And so, so you think about like, in fact, so most globally, in fact, I've heard folks say like, they're you're killing us right you american evangelicals are killing us with this stuff because people are now starting because america is such on the on the stage globally um people associate them with the things that are going on here in the united states so um but i think if white evangelicals would ever dare to actually be in conversation in a mutual dialogical conversation with any of those groups um i guess there would be hope there but i don't see hope in the movement itself right yeah um and so I, you know, I mean, I haven't, yeah, I, I'm not but, that. But I feel like, I feel like part of your work is probably, I would guess speaking to people who consider themselves part of that belief system structure. Like I, I'm sure there's multiple kids that you're talking to at Messiah and beyond when you speak that are part of that, <laughs> as you called it, uh, morally bankrupt tradition. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. And 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 when you say when you use even that language, I think that's so good because I I believe it was King who said the church is the moral conscience of the nation. Like, right. like it, it seems as if the evangelical church has failed to bear witness, right? In in right. In, the, in the in those moral ways, or at least, I mean, I grew up in white evangelicalism. Okay, I grew up um, uh, in I mean multiple churches, but an Assemblies of God church that was predominantly white. And then uh, uh, independent Baptist church and then a non-denominational, like typical, like, you know, seeker friendly church, you know, think think Willow Creek type style church. Right. Right. Those three churches, I remember from elementary school to to the end of my high school time. I can't remember one time that racism was ever talked about or any amount of conversation was had about issues of race from the pulpit yeah um because when those things would happen in our world or when those conversations would explode on a on a you know national level um the church would come to the conclusion of uh that's not for us to talk about like that that was their their way of handling it like that's that's not our place that's political or that's this and I think that that notion has so like muted it, it's made them morally bankrupt because they do speak on other things. Right. <laughs> that so are they're like, talking about abortion and sexuality all day, right? Yeah. But, exactly. but they don't want to talk about poverty or racism. Yeah. Or any <laughs> exactly. That's the exact thing I'm saying. I could tell you multiple times I heard sermons on those topics. And that's right. and that's where that's where I guess I'm saying like there came a point to where I saw the hypocrisy. Right. Um, and, and that's where I, I, I do sometimes wonder, it seems like I, I, I sense like, cause I try to describe to people like, yeah, everything about our church in a lot of ways, there's, we are evangelical in a lot of ways, like, but we're also not like, <laughs> like yeah. we're not in, in, in certain senses. I don't know. I don't know how to explain that, but I, I mean, it, it's yeah. a, it's hard. Cause I want to hold out hope that, that something can be redeemed. You know what I mean? That something we can do better. But I also wonder, as I think of millennials and Gen Z and their perception of the term evangelical, right. whether or not it's even redeemable in their psyche, you know what I mean? Like, because it's attached to so much, so much right. negative. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't, yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, I know there's some who have, 
and I, I admire, you know, there's some Christians who have leaned into the word because they're like, no, we're going to fight over this, right? And hey, mm-hmm. good for you. Um, you know, that's not going to be my fight. But, <laughs> but, but I, I respect that you're willing to and trying to at least keep the conversation going, right? Um, yeah. I think that that is cool. So I don't, I don't hate on anybody that I'm not convinced that anybody, I guess you got to, like, it, a conversation takes two people. Um, and, and so if people don't want to talk to you, you can do it all you want. I'm not, I'm not actually seeing them actually, I, I think there's certain contexts, like, again, like colleges are a great context to engage people in actual conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Now for me, like what I love to do is then introduce them to what I call, um, traditions that are adjacent to evangelicalism. Right. And that's where oh. like, so I teach anabaptism and I teach African-American theology and particularly black theology, um, in those courses. And so I feel like there's something adjacent to evangelicalism about those two traditions that it's not like, it's not going from, you know, that to like Eastern Orthodox or Catholic, like it's not like just complete different Mm -hmm. traditions and stuff. Um, But at the same time, it does orient them and it's very frameworks and structures start from different standpoint, right? Where most of the Christians that come into the classroom for me their starting point is whether someone said the prayer or not. Mm. Um, it's not about if they're actually following Jesus, right? And so I feel like the praxis is not assumed in their model. Um, there doesn't have to be any praxis for you to consider yourself yeah. a Christian. And I think that's the the one of the reasons why it's so bankrupt in the tradition, alongside of the fact that I think that Jesus has just been so domesticated and distorted and watered down that the Jesus that they talk about is not the Jesus we find in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? Mm. And so, um, so how do I reintroduce people to Jesus? In fact, one of my colleagues he said to me when I first came, he said, Drew, welcome to the mission field, right? He's talking about me engaging these evangelicals, <laughs> saying, like, this is the mission field, right? Um, <laughs> as they think they're coming here to get ready to go out to the mission. No, you're, you're the, because the church has been so compromised and the yeah. church has gotten bed with power and has been oppressive and has been one of the most harmful forces at work in our society in the last mm. several hundred years, right? Um, yeah. Nothing has been more destructive than those who claim to be Christian. That's why I think uh, Frederick Douglass, who said, you know, uh, there's true Christianity and there's this Christi- the religion of this land, right? And there's mm. nothing farther apart than the two. And he says, I love the peaceable, um, loving Christ, but I hate the slave-holding, woman-whipping, cradle-robbing Christ, uh, Jesus of this land, right? And so mm. he understands deeply that there's something deeply distorted about the Jesus that's being claimed that allows and permits oppression and violence to happen every day um, so that someone can, you know, well, as James Cohn says it, right, you can lynch somebody on Saturday night and then sing Old Rugged Cross on Sunday morning, right? How, mm. how does that live together right and so i think that um that's why there's something so bankrupt about the tradition is they've lost hold of a jesus outside of just adoring this abstract jesus um that has no bearing for the kind of ethical life that they're going to live in the world i like i like how you make that i i I sometimes wonder if we have an evangelical problem or if we just have an american problem like and i'm and i mean that from the standpoint of like i love how you connected that from frederick Douglass, you know and i even think of you know martin luther king jr's like letter from a birmingham jail like he's calling out white pastors like you know what i mean like he's saying like i thought you guys would be the first ones to support us 
I thought you guys would be the first ones to champion this. And we've received some of the worst opposition from you guys. You who like claim He's Jesus. talking about the white moderate church. Yes, the white moderate church. Exactly. <laughs> right. So like, I mean, uh, and, and typically that's happening even from just a position of neutrality. Right. But, um, but like, it can also happen from a position of like being outright against uh, on the other side of, and right. yeah, I, yeah. I, I think, I think it's hard to disconnect our Westernness from evangelicalism too. Like, like, like yeah. you said, there's a global evangelical movement and then there's a Christian or a, a, an American Christian evangelicalism. That's, that's different and separate because of our context. Then that's, yeah. that's a that's a whole mission field that you're on <laughs> so yeah. good luck and, to and, you <laughs> and one more just so, so we don't let uh too many christians off the hook right yeah yeah, yeah to remember that the majority of white mainline christians um also voted for trump it wasn't 80 percent i think it was like 50 something whatever but really i didn't know a that majority yeah hmm. of white mainline christians voted for trump um and so if honestly if you go back to you know, civil rights time, for example, evangelicals for the most part and the kind of more fundamentalist side of it, I mean, they actually weren't involved in politics. They were laying low. It was mainline Christians who were at the forefront. And so um, there's a bigger problem. In fact, I often tell folks, because I know like right now, sometimes people run to like the Anglican church or the Episcopal church and think like, I'm like, where do you think evangelicals learned all this stuff from? The mm. Anglican church. Like they're the, they were the original conquestors of, of, of the new world. I mean, they, they nobody colonized like the British, right? Mm -hmm. um, and they were massive slaveholders and they taught. In fact, um, when it, it was the scariest thing when I began to read and learn that like um, Anglican missionaries came down into the South with pamphlets to teach people how to properly uh, control their slaves, right? They're not teaching them right. Wow. And so you've got to practice absolute obedience and come down on every infraction and teach them, right? And so they're actually, because before that, there's actually, uh, folk, Christians were afraid of, white Christians didn't want to proselytize enslaved black people because they thought, number one, that they might have to liberate them because that was English, um, like, custom. And secondly, they believed that it would make them um, more uppity and hard to deal with, right? More troublesome. And mm. so then these Angli uh, Anglican missionaries come down with pamphlets saying, oh, no, 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 you're not doing it right. Teach them. And that's where the whole, you know, slaves obey your masters and all this stuff, yeah. right? And so it's, can, these things go together, right? Um, these things go together hand in hands. And now you need to make sure that they live into their calling that Jesus has invited them into to be <laughs> subservient as slaves, right? And so, wow. so there's a bigger problem um, that we could talk about in terms of Western Christianity um, that most of Western Christianity, and that's why I love Anabaptists, uh, you could say mostly break from this, um, are, were deeply complicit in colonialism and slavery, right? Mm -hmm. um, there's few um, Christian traditions in the West that weren't complicit in that. And, and some of the ones that people are now running to as if their hands are clean started the whole thing. Um, and so I think that um, sometimes some of the mainline Christians, white mainline Christians, um, are too quick to criticize evangelicals when they've got many more skeletons that go centuries back even further mm -hmm. um, that they're not owning, that they have that they're complicit in as well. And so I think it's, it's messier, right, for a lot of tradition Christians that I think 
they want to often acknowledge. Yeah, no, that's, I think that's really important because I think it broadens it to say this isn't, this isn't just simply an evangelical problem. This is a problem of, of a nation with, with roots. Like, look, the, the roots are going to produce the fruit that they produce. And you can't ignore that where we are today, even experiencing the reality of, of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and, and all these others, like this, this is coming from our roots that we have not properly uh, repented from and sought to reconcile, you know, or even sought to educate and understand so many people I talk to don't even know like a brief history, like of right. what it means to be black in, in America from, from the beginning of America to now, like they don't know that experience because first of all, it's never, it's not taught in schools very well, if at all, but, but even beyond not being taught in schools, like, even when you're approached with that information as a white person, I'll be honest, it, it's difficult to, to know how to respond. The white fragility is real. I don't want to yeah. be responsible for this thing that happened 200 years ago. That's not me. I didn't do that. I didn't do that. That's easy enough to just say that and walk away. That's not me. Right. I didn't do it. So I'm walking away. But the truth is, is like everything that you're experiencing, the entire structure of, um, of our world is is built on what happened back there. Like, you know, and, and if it wasn't for what happened back there, you probably wouldn't have some of the economic advances you have. Not probably, you wouldn't have some of the economic advances you have. You wouldn't have some of the privilege you have. You wouldn't have, so like you have to acknowledge that happened. And so many people immediately just don't want to acknowledge it. And I think that, that that's where the church in my mind should be the first people to say, Look for healing to happen. We gotta, we we gotta own this. Like we gotta own this, and we gotta do what we can to repair it and to reconcile it, to to heal. Um, that's the Christ way is to is to say what what is it going to look like to heal this? Um, and I don't know that I have I don't have many answers on how that happens. But even just that posture alone, if the church would come to this conversation with that posture, it would change the whole conversation. But I don't think we, I don't know. I, I, I hope that because now cell phone cameras exist, that, that we, we will have to bear witness to it more than we have in the past, but it's unfortunate that it's taken that for us to bear witness um, more so than we have in the past. Yeah. And, and unfortunately is what we see is that some people, even their eyes lie to them, right? <laughs> um, oh, so yeah. There's some folks that it doesn't matter. I don't think, I mean, there's some folks that clearly some videos will help, but others that doesn't matter. Yeah. And honestly, um, until we can get to the point where you don't need a video, right? Mm, yeah. Because the fact there is, is that most of the stuff still doesn't get captured on video. And so yeah. what, what do we do in those moments? And if we're still going to then automatically revert to don't trust black people's lived experiences and what they're saying and how they tell their own story, then we're back to square one again, most of the time. And we're mm -hmm. just making exceptions to it. Right. So yeah, it's tough. Um, but you know, I think that there was a time when slavery seemed like it could never end. Right. Yeah. Um, and, but you have people who persisted and who struggled in solidarity and that included white people involved in that work too. 
and that came to an end and, and then Jim Crow and then that came to an end and now we've got other systems and unjust, you know, equitable distribution of funds and all kinds of stuff that we've got to deal with. But um, things can change. And hopefully this time, you know, before they were changing the problem, but they weren't getting down to the root of it, which was white supremacy, white supremacy itself. And so hopefully mm. we can get to the root of it um, and exercise this demon, right? Yeah. Um, and I think that that is, um, is where the hope will be is if we can actually um, exercise white supremacy from the life of the church. Is that what keeps you from becoming cynical? Because I feel like it would be very easy as an educator of this to see the pain, to study the pain, to live the pain as a you know black male in America. Like, how do you keep from being cynical? I know I told you the evangelicalism was our last question, but this will be our last question, I yeah, promise. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Yeah, no, I mean, I think first and foremost, um, I I try to lean into communities where I find love right mm. um, and what I mean by that is like I know like there's been times in my life like when I um coming out of college where I was just drained and it just kind of beat me up and I feel like I needed to at that time um get immersed in honestly black community because that was the place where my humanity would be affirmed, my gifting would be affirmed, and where I know I could both give, receive, and share love, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I could find healing in that. And so from that point forward, um, I've known that I've always needed that to be, that needs to be a part of my life, that I, I can't be a lone ranger out here trying to take on white supremacy. All my, yeah. You know, yeah. I need a community that's going to keep me sane um, and affirm me and all that. And so that, that's always on my mind. Um, but I do, you know, uh, strangely, you know, I, I have this hope um, that, 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 you know, what we see is that what is right now is not the last word, right? Yeah. Um, and so leaning into the hope that Jesus gives us that another world is possible, another world is coming. Um, mm -hmm. And so how do we embody that right now and, 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 and press towards it, right? Embody that hope for others. And so for me, that's part of my work is to be the hope for others, a visible manifestation of that hope, and also receive that and hold on to it, right? And so hope can be many things in some ways. Mm. Um, and in the moment that I feel like I fall into despair, I feel like, I don't know, I don't think I would struggle anymore, right? And then, yeah. and, and it's precisely that there's been, at least in terms of Black folk, I mean, from the moment Black folk were grabbed from Africa, from the shores of Africa. People were resisting, right? You know, there's stories mm -hmm. of all the resistance over the month's journey of uh, the, you know, journey over the Atlantic and struggle in the fields and running away and abolitionists and breaking, you know, the instruments that they had to work with for the field and setting fields on fire, all kinds of stuff, right? People were resisting um, from the moment, from the very beginning. Um, and so it's been a long fight, but, you know, I imagine that my great, 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 great ancestors um, probably couldn't have fathomed that, you know, that my way of life was even possible, right? And so I want to mm -hmm. um, press that much forward for my great, 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 great grandchildren if I might have them. So, yeah. Wow, that was beautifully said. Thank you, Drew. Um, can you give people some links they can follow you at or where you would want them to go to 
access some of your work or, or what you're doing. I know I pre-ordered the book on Amazon. Not sure if that's the best place or the place you'd recommend, but uh, yeah, go ahead. Tell yeah. me. Yeah. So again, two books I got, Trouble I've Seen, Changing the Way the Church Views Racism, which came out in 2016. That can be found anywhere books are sold. It's available on Amazon. You can also get it um, directly from Harold Press, which is my publisher. Same thing with um, Who Will Be a Witness, Igniting Activism for God's Justice, Love, and Deliverance. And that can be uh, bought anywhere where books are sold, including Amazon and Harold Press. Um, you can, again, find me um, in terms of dialoguing with Jared McKenna on the Inverse podcast that you can mm-hmm. found anywhere. Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Drew Hart, D-R-U-H-A-R-T. Also got a Facebook page. And um, and I do have a page, uh, I'm slowly fixing it up. It's been a little old, but um, DrewGIHarts.com is um, my personal website. And you can find more information about me there as well. Um, and uh, if anybody's interested in coming, if you got young folks who want um, to find a different Jesus, um, but are <laughs> looking for education, I will, I will say this, um, our biblical and religious studies department is amazing. Um, it's not a conservative evangelical, like um, it's a pretty um, progressive, diverse, and sometimes we're the troublemakers on campus. Um, <laughs> Which is a good thing, I think, um, that that's the reputation that we have. I think that it's faithfulness to Jesus that we yeah. get ourselves into trouble every now and then on campus. <laughs> uh, but students, um, minorities in all different ways um, come to us and, and I think find comfort that there's more to Christianity than what they often have been taught. So, yeah. And, and that's messiah.edu, I would assume. Yeah, messiah.edu, which Messiah this summer is changing to Messiah University. Oh, that's right. I did know that. I knew they were in talks of that like a year ago. That went through. Oh, very cool. Yep. Very cool. Well, Drew, thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation. I, I really appreciate it. Yep. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This was good. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Beyond Boundaries podcast. Thanks to Drew Hart for being with me on the podcast today. Please consider buying his book, Trouble I've Seen. The link to purchase the book is in the show notes. Also, please, please, please follow Drew on social media. I posted the links in the show notes. He is sharing some great content right now. It would really be helpful for you to follow him on your social media platforms. Also, the Belong Collective, the community that I pastor, is reading Trouble I've Seen together. So if you'd like to join us, uh, we will be doing Zoom Wednesday night convos around uh, the contents of the book. Uh, That starts June 10th, and everyone's invited. Even if you're not part of the Belong Collective, uh, we would love for you to to join us. Um, Just follow the Belong Collective on Facebook or Instagram, and you'll get that info as it comes out. Uh, Please continue listening to Black Voices in the midst of all the noise in our world today. Um, Please use your platform to elevate Black Voices. Um, And ultimately... May we all be striving for and seeking justice in this time. May you go and live a life that is beyond boundaries, giving others love, exploring new ideas, and championing belonging.